Welcome to the Co-op Power Hour on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Nathan Schneider, a scholar in residence of media studies at CU Boulder. This show is where members of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle join you on the fourth Thursday of every month to explore the challenges and opportunities of people-powered democratic economies. Uh, my co-host today is Paul Bindle. Paul, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks for having me, Nathan. Um, I came to co-ops originally through housing cooperatives at the University of Oregon, and only recently in the last few years have discovered worker cooperatives as a way of kind of moving from democratically controlled houses to democratically controlled workplaces. So currently I live in a cooperative house that's in the formation called Queen City Cooperative. It's in Denver, um, and we are um, in the process of establishing a limited equity um, cooperative of some kind. <laughs> We're still determining that. And I also work um, part-time at Rocky Mountain Employee Ownership Center, which is one of seven state centers in the U.S. that is dedicated to helping businesses become employee-owned. Fantastic. And that is actually precisely the topic of our, of our conversation today. We're going to be talking about conversions, how businesses can uh, change their structure from being uh, kind of more conventional or centrally owned or investor owned uh, uh, to being more cooperatively and democratically owned. And we're going to hear from uh, Paul's boss, Silly C. Vinson, who's the director of the Rocky Mountain Employee Ownership Center, uh, as well as uh, Jason Weiner, who's a uh, local uh, cooperative and social enterprise lawyer. He's uh, part of a new uh, organization called Colorado Cooperative Developers and has a lot of experience in the kind of nuts and bolts of, of this work. Uh, so it's going to be a great show. And, and this comes in the context of a massive shift. Uh, millions of baby boomer-owned businesses and employers are poised to close because there's no succession plan in place. Uh, uh, there's no heirs to take over the business or uh, uh, kind of natural uh, uh, next step. So what if those businesses could be sold to the people who know them best? Uh, they're employees. And, you know, when a lot of people think about cooperatives, you know, uh, businesses owned by the people who participate in them, um, uh, we tend to think of them of, of companies you know, or, or housing cooperatives like uh, where Paul lives that, are, that started out as a kind of cooperative model. But in many cases, we overlook the fact that, that uh, uh, cooperatives or employee-owned businesses often come out of other kinds of businesses, uh, that a conversion process takes place. Uh, and that might actually be uh, the most strategic way to, uh, uh, to scale and grow the democratic economy. Uh, and this can happen on all sorts of levels, from, uh, from small-scale local businesses that uh, have a few employees and, and, and uh, the owner gradually transfers it to those employees, to a case like uh, Twitter, if you can, if you can imagine. Uh, currently, I, I've been involved in an effort uh, uh, where, where we've uh, made a shareholder proposal uh, to Twitter shareholders uh, for their meeting coming up this May 22nd. Uh, for the company to even just consider uh, the options for conversion to user ownership. So this is a conversation that uh, uh, spans across our economy from the online to the offline, to the, from big businesses to small businesses. 
uh, and we're going to talk to some of our uh, local experts in the possibilities of co-op conversion. Yeah, and just to add to what you what you said about um, baby boomer owned businesses, I think it's important to note that about roughly sixty percent of all U.S. businesses are owned by baby boomers, and so there's a big need right now for buyers on the market. And so it's not just that the businesses might close, it's that they might not be able to find the buyers that they need um, yeah, in order absolutely. to keep the businesses going. And so one way that RMEOC comes in is we really are trying to um, retain businesses in the communities that, it, that are currently existing. So we want jobs to continue. We want businesses to continue that are proven businesses um, and, and maybe- that are providing a need or meeting a need. Absolutely. Maybe some of the people listening uh, uh, tonight are going to uh, uh, are going to be in a position uh, to consider this for themselves. For those of you just joining us, this is the Co-op Power Hour on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Nathan Schneider, and I'm uh, here with my co-host, Paul Bindle. Our first guest uh, today is Halisi Vinson, who's executive director of the Rocky Mountain Employee Ownership Center. It's an organization that's devoted to helping businesses uh, convert to more democratic forms of ownership. Halisi, can you start by telling us a bit about what you do at RMEOC and, and why that's so important? Oh, thank you. Definitely, Nathan. Um, the Rocky Mountain Employee Ownership Center is one of seven state centers in the nation. And all of us, um, although we are all associated with each other, we're not under one governing body, and we all operate a bit differently. Here in Colorado, um, we do three things. The first thing that we do is make sure that we are educating folks on um, the power and importance of employee ownership. Um, as an economic and community development tool, as well as a succession planning tool. And lastly, as a way just to build a more stronger, resilient business. Um, the second thing that we do is collaborate with government uh, officials and, and offices of economic development um, to help them with their uh, economic development plans. And lastly, what we do is advocate. We advocate for legislation that is... Um, friendly and, and, and definitely against uh, legislation that is adverse to employee ownership. Great. Um, would you be able to tell us, we've heard that there's actually some legislation that you're currently working on? Oh, most definitely. Let's see. At this point, we are um, nearly at the finish line, and it has been a tricky road, to say the least. And so the bill is House Bill... Um, 1214 that was sponsored in the House by Representative James Coleman and sponsored in the Senate by Senator Jack Tate. And um, we passed the House about a month ago. Um, and, uh, you know, we, Rocky Mountain Employee Ownership Center, as, as well as other folks, came to the committee meeting to testify. And then shortly thereafter, it passed the House. Um, it moved on to the Senate, had its first reading, and actually the Senate leader had decided to kill the bill and sent it to a committee that was um, inappropriate. And thankfully, with the good work of Senator Jack Tate, it got um, reassigned to the appropriate committee, which is the Business Committee. And um, we had um, the committee reading last week, 
and we testified again, and it passed with bipartisan support. Passed the second reading this week, and it's going on to the third reading, which I understand is just, um, you know, a formality before it goes to the governor's desk. So we need to make sure that Governor Hickenlooper signs this legislation. And basically what it provides for is, um, is twofold. One, that the, the State Office of Economic Development and Inna- International Trade, um, called OEDIT, that they add this to their toolbox and that they have um, someone like RMEOC or some other entity actually train um, their their folks in the small business development centers across the state to um, to understand the, the intricacies of employee ownership and actually pass this information out to um, business owners that, that come to them. And then lastly, they are going to uh, be the administrators of a revolving loan fund for small businesses to help with feasibility studies or um, the transaction itself. And so those monies will, will actually come from grants and donations. And could you tell us how many um, small business development centers are in Colorado? There's 14. Cool. Uh, 14 around the state, yeah. So this could be huge. And um, and interestingly, you know, some of uh, some of the um, representatives and senators that voted against it did not believe that government should um, educate business owners whatsoever. And um, and so I guess they're against the small business association as well. I have no idea. I didn't ask, but that was the implication. Wow. Now, for those of us who do uh, believe in educating uh, business owners about uh, a wider variety of options, can you give us a sense of what some employee-owned businesses in Colorado look like? What 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 is the what is the um, kind of the goal here? What are some examples uh, that so that people can get a clear sense in their mind of what we're talking about? Yeah, and, and interestingly enough, when I say employee ownership, I get. I get some really weird questions um, that let me know that this is something that you would think would be a no-brainer, but is still um, not as mainstream as as we want it to be. And um, and so employee-owned businesses can be as small as three or four um, employees. Um, you know, on average, our small businesses here in the state of Colorado have less than 30 employees. And um, those make a good um, candidate for employee ownership in, in its many different forms. And depending upon um, what their, their revenues are would depend upon what, you know, form I would suggest. And I'll get to that in a second. And then lastly, um, they can get as big as, you know, some of our craft brewers like New Belgium Brewery um, and Odell's and Left Hand uh, Brewing Companies. We also have a 100% owned grocery store chain called Levers that opens under Colorado Ranch Market and Save-A-Lots. And, um, and they're probably um, one of the larger um, ESOPs, not including the, the gigantic um, companies that are actually um, construction companies and engineering companies that are actually multina- multinational. Mm. And so what what are some of the advantages? You know, when somebody comes to you saying, uh, uh, you know, I'm interested in learning more about this model, what's in it for me? What do you say? <laughs> um, well, it depends on, you know, if they say what's in it for me, it depends on whether they're ready to retire today or if um, they're just trying to build a stronger business. 
And so um, there's absolutely a tax advantage for the owner if they sell 30% of their business to an employee-owned company, either as an employee stock uh, option plan or ESOP, or as a worker cooperative, either one of those two forms, they sell 30% of their business, they get to defer those taxes indefinitely. And so um, that's definitely an advantage. But the but the bigger long-term goal here is is twofold, and this is what we know, Nathan, is that when you have um, an employee-owned company and you incorporate open book management or um, uh, a more democratic management style, that you have more engaged employees. And right now, according to Gallup, more than 70% of employees are disengaged or actively disengaged, which means they're wreaking havoc. I mean, 70%. And just imagine if you had a company where 70% of the computers didn't work. <laughs> I mean, right? So, I, you know, and so the notion, you know, and a lot of founders and, and, and uh, CEOs and managers are uh, really disillusioned with who their employees are and, and um, how much loyalty and engagement they actually have. And, um, and it is not until they start delving into this that they understand um, excuse me, that they understand, you know, um, where they are in, in, in the process and, um, and how much work they actually have left to do. Yeah, so well, if it, they want it's, to, a, it's I, just I mean, amazing. You know, yeah. ha- you go to um, the, the airport bookstores, right? And you see those books in, uh, uh, in the front of the store. And, and they're all about like, so many of them are about how to get your employees to feel a sense of ownership, right? Uh, you know, right. how to get them to feel and, and, you know, kind of makes you wonder, are employees stupid, right? You know, and and why not? Let's talk about real ownership rather than just a sense of ownership. You know, if people knew that they actually had a had a had a um, an ownership stake in the company, how would they behave differently? Exactly. And, you know, I, I remember this from my first job out of college, you know, I want you to own this, I want you to make this your own. And, um, and that's nice. <laughs> and it, it's it's definitely important for employees to feel like they have a voice and to actually have that voice. Um, but at the end of the day, none of that pays the mortgage. None of that pays the rent. And um, Corey Rosen, who's the founder of the National Center for Employee Ownership, has coined a phrase saying that, you know, no one washes a rental car. And, um, and you know, it couldn't be further from the truth when it comes to business as well. And so if you really want your, your employees to think like owners, act like owners, then make them an owner. Alicia, you've talked about <clears throat> two different kinds of employee ownership, and you've referenced two different kinds. Um, you said ESOPs and worker cooperatives. Could you tell us a little bit more about those forms and any other forms that you've seen of employee ownership in Colorado? Oh, absolutely. You know, there's, there is always a, a deal to be made, is, is what I tell businesses, and there's no one right way for everyone. And so an employee stock ownership plan, which is probably the most popular, um, and, and interestingly enough, I, it, it's actually also the most um, intricate. So it is more like a retirement plan and runs under the same ERISA rules as a 401k. And basically how it works is that the stock is not directly owned by the employees, but is held in a trust called an ESOP trust where there is a, 
you know, someone who is a, a fiduciary that is responsible for for um, administering that trust and making sure that everything is is handled correctly. The employees then are members of the trust. And everyone knows that trusts are not taxed. So um, all of the gains in that trust then are not taxed, and that's another advantage. Um, as far as um, management, businesses can be managed conventionally under an ESOP, um, but we don't recommend that they are. We, we, we do recommend that you adopt a more democratic governance and management style with an ESOP. Um, I suggest that businesses that make anything less than $12 million in revenue per year, um, not net, but revenue, um, this is probably not a good option for them. Um, you do have to get a valuation done every year, a formal valuation, and um, and then, of course, you have to, you know, um, pay the trustee who's in charge of the of the ESOP trust. And so, um, you know, it, it can be more costly. The other end of the spectrum, and one that is intrinsically more democratic, is a worker cooperative where it's one person, one vote. That does not mean that everyone votes on every single issue. And we do not advocate for a collective management style um, <laughs> because it's hard to run a business that way. So in some ways, it's, it's managed a little bit more conventionally. But um, because of the laws that we have here in Colorado, and that's another thing, um, worker co-ops are um, state-to-state, state, whereas ESOPs is, are federally um, uh, managed or dictated, you know, the rules are, are dictated on a, on a federal level. So here in Colorado, we do have um, cooperative laws on the books, and um, and they call for democratic governance. That means the bylaws are are, are written democratically, um, with with democratic rules and 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 management as well. And um, so you can have a traditional management style, just like a Namaste Solar. They have a CEO and they have those C level employees, um, but but. Um, Every person there in the in the company knows that they have a voice, and for certain big um, decisions, everyone takes a vote. In between there, there's hybrids, there's direct stock purchase plans. You know, I know one that did a cross between, um, you know, one person, one vote, you know, so one voting share for each employee, and then the rest was a direct stock purchase. But those were non-voting shares. Um, you can have it where, you know, the community owns a piece of the co-op, and so there's there's uh, equity set aside for the community, and the rest is owned by the employees. So there's a lot of different creative ways that you can make this work. And just to clarify, it sounds like ESOPs are geared toward retirement. How do co-ops relate to, like, is there retirement accounts in co-ops as well, or...? There can be retirement accounts, but, um, you know, and, and we suggest even with an ESOP that there is an additional 401k. If the, if the company can make that happen, then there should be a 401k in place in, in all instances. So with an, with an ESOP, you do not get the money until you leave the company. And, of course, because it's pre-taxed money, you probably want to roll that open to an IRA or something like that. With a worker cooperative, um, you know, a patronage dividends are, are conceivably, assuming that the company is profitable, profitable, paid out um, on a uh, regular basis, annually, biannually, quarterly, like that. So, um, yeah, but with all, you don't want to put all of your eggs in one basket. So we always suggest that you also have a 401k, no matter which form you take. 
So this is a whole range of options. And, and you know, really what you're inviting people into is not just a single model, but a, a kind of adventure into ownership design, into, into cr crafting the appropriate ownership model for a given business. And, and uh, uh, it's, it's a, there's a wide range of, of creative options. So um, just before we, we uh, wrap up, I, I wonder if, if you could tell us a bit about how people can get involved. If, if this uh, piques their interest, they see benefits for the, the current owners and, the, and, and employees, uh, uh, you know, how, how does somebody start to learn more and, and start to actually uh, maybe even move forward with the possibility of a conversion to, um, to worker ownership? Yeah, well, the one thing they can do is join the Rocky Mountain Employee Ownership Center, and our address is um, the the initials rmeoc.org, and um, that's the first step that they can take. And I, and I tell you, um, you know, what we know is that employee-owned businesses do better. You know, they have higher sales, they have less turnover, they were four times less likely to lay folks off during the last uh, Great Recession, um, and so, you know, what we want to make sure is that we understand, you know, for business owners, this is a win-win. This is something where they can plan out their um, their exit strategy over a period of time, preserve that legacy, and make sure that that business stays locally owned in the community and and serving the community that has that has supported it all along. And um, and so, yeah, definitely go to rmeoc.org, join us. Um, come to events. We have social events. We have learning events. Most of them are free. And um, join the movement. Thank you so much, Alisi. Really appreciate your time. Absolutely. My pleasure. Take care. You're listening to the Co-op Power Hour on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Paul Bendel, Communications Manager at Rocky Mountain Employee Ownership Center, and this show is where members of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle join you on the fourth Thursday of every month to explore the challenges and opportunities of people-powered democratic economies. Your co-host is Nathan Schneider. Nathan, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm a scholar-in-residence of media studies uh, at uh, CU Boulder. And, um, and with Paul, I'm a member of the uh, Colorado Co-op Study Circle. It's a, it's a new group that is uh, meeting about once a month and, and uh, in the Front Range area and talking about uh, democratic business models. And you can learn more about the Co-op Study Circle at coloradocoops.info. Our next guest uh, today is Jason Weiner, and he's a real uh, a local treasure for democratic enterprise. He's a uh, a principal at Jason Weiner PC, uh, a law firm, and, and is, um, uh, is recently a co-founder of Colorado Cooperative Developers with uh, Linda Phillips, another veteran uh, co-op lawyer. So he's really at the center of, of working to build uh, creative uh, models, legal business models for, um, for co-ops. So welcome to the show, Jason. Can you just take us to um, uh, say a, a, a first meeting with somebody who's interested in forming or converting their business to uh, a cooperative, since we're talking about conversions today. Um, somebody walks in your door and says, you know, I've got this business, I've got some employees, I'm interested in, in uh, 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 moving it over to a more cooperative structure. What are the questions that you, uh, that you pose to them? 
Well, contrary to what a lot of folks and listeners might think when sitting down with a lawyer to talk about a business transaction, I sit down and I like to zoom out and, and really understand the story of the business owner, what motivated them to found the business, what values have they run by which have they by which they've run the business, and what's motivating them to consider employee ownership. The transaction at the end of the day will involve lots of legal documents and technical detail, but most importantly, we're creating a transaction that has very few analogs in the traditional marketplace. And it's important to understand the motivating factors and the energy behind it. Uh, we're creating a situation where an owner is looking at passing on his or her legacy, the values, and to reward the most important stakeholders that have made the business successful or kept it going for all these years. And so that's an important thing to honor and to factor into the transaction. And it shows up in a very real way. So it's important to understand that, take stock in it, and to have a realistic set of expectations about what's involved. Uh, very often, these transactions don't fetch the absolute highest price, dollar price. Uh, and so it's important to really understand the motivations of the seller. What kinds of motivations do you think are, are best aligned with, with a successful conversion? I mean, wh wh what, what, uh, what benefits um, have you seen these kinds of conversions actually um, produce? Very often, resilience uh, for a business that operates in a competitive environment or maybe there's volatility in the market in which they operate. An employee-owned business is able to withstand the ebbs and flows of competition, of the business climate, of more general uh, economic cycles, because people are invested and they feel a sense of a, a sense and a reality of ownership that drives performance and drives loyalty. Uh, there's also a really deep sense of honor in both directions. A founder who has taken the risk and put everything on the line to start something they believe in. As that sense ebbs and flows, this transaction is a really important way to honor what went into founding the business, sometimes a few years later, sometimes decades later. And it's a way to pass on a legacy. If, if the business owner is considering employee ownership, among other options, it's a contrast. It's an exercise in contrast to look at, say, an alternative where there's a strategic buyer. Maybe it's a bigger company out there that wants to enter this local market, or maybe it's uh, there's you know a, a group of investors that are willing to buy out the business and uh, sell it off for parts and make a bunch of money that way, whatever the case is. This is a way for a seller to incorporate his or her values and pass on a legacy and to entrust that legacy with veteran employees who have made him or her successful and made the business successful. Um, and we see that bear out. I've been a part of a couple of transitions that have involved um, a natural kind of business cycle after a conversion and the resurgence and rebound was actually surprising in a very positive way. And it was just so exciting to see all the employees participate, um, really kind of bear down during the hard times and see the rebound and feel like their collective contributions made a difference. And they really did. I think that was probably what, what made the difference in the end. So I imagine some of our listeners are hearing you describe this and maybe resonating with some of the values you're articulating. I'm curious, though, um, 
I, I can also imagine them saying like, well, could it work for my industry? So what I'm curious is, could you describe some of the industries that you've worked with and businesses that you've sort of facilitated? Um, and maybe say if, if you think this is appropriate for a specific type of industry? Sure. Yeah, I get that question a lot. And I start out by saying uh, we're talking about conversions here. And so, you know, for, for a startup conversation, it's a little bit different. But for a conversion, we're talking about a seller that's not motivated at cashing out and, and you know, pulling his or her chips off the table to go, um, you know, retire at the highest possible sale price of the business. We're, in, we're talking about a transition to direct and actual ownership and everything that entails. Um, and that's probably a conversation for a different episode to really dig into what is ownership and what does it mean. Um, but it can work in lots of different sectors. So uh, right now it's popular in the energy sector, um, particularly renewable energy. Um, up the street here in Boulder is a company that I was a part of for a number of years, Namaste Solar. We're seeing uh, a number of similar transitions across the country. So solar companies that in some cases were started in the 80s and kind of eked along during really tough times and saw the market really explode in the early 2000s. And in some of these cases, the sellers are, are looking to retire. And the owners, the workers who've been with them a long time, it's just a natural fit. It's, it's a natural part of the ethos that the, the owner had created. Uh, we're seeing it in tech, interestingly enough. Any place where you've got uh, technical workers and uh, folks who are working um, in a service sector. So here in town, Dojo4 is a small uh, tech firm that recently converted to worker ownership. We're seeing it also outside just the context of uh, companies that have lots of employees. We're seeing it in, uh, in the agriculture sector, for instance. There are farms here in Boulder County that have been operated successfully for a number of years. And for the very same reasons, the farm owners are looking at how do I diversify my risk? How do I share the platform I've created with my community? How do I create a succession plan? Um, we're seeing it in uh, some of the home service sectors. So landscape, uh, landscaper work, plumbing and electrical contractors, uh, and, and, and some industrial companies, certainly in craft beer. Uh, we all know of, we could probably throw a stone anywhere in Boulder County and hit a, an employee-owned craft, craft brewery. Um, and I'm constantly surprised at, at the sectors that we see, uh, where we see development. But that's just a smattering of what we have here locally. And so walk us through a kind of broad uh, uh, story of the, the process that this kind of conversion uh, would involve. You know, what, what are the steps uh, that, that the average conversion would go through from uh, a conventionally more centrally owned business to something that's more democratically owned? I'll start out by saying that what often overwhelms or exacerbates uh, a founder or an owner considering this process is how much thought and time goes in on the front end. And what I tell people is that that's time well spent. We're designing a new system. We're designing a new governance model. That is the systems by which the business is organized, how there are uh, the, the mechanisms for accountability. We're designing a new ownership structure. It can all be done very simply and in a standard fashion. We struggle then with kind of enforcement on the back end, understanding, education, and really exercise of, of authentic democracy. 
So the time on the front end can can um, entail a lot of back and forth. Often there's a period of exploration where the stakeholders, both selling owner and employee buyers, and even some other stakeholders are really just kicking the tires and, and uh, looking to understand the process. What does this mean? They're learning a new vocabulary. They're trying to understand the impact on the longevity of the business. What does the transaction look like? What are the risks? What are the opportunities? And that can take anywhere from a month to 12 months. Uh, at some point in that process, we start to create models. We start to look at what does the financial structure look like for the transaction and beyond? What does the governance structure look like at, tr at the point of sale and beyond? And that can take much less time. By that point, we've done education. We have a sense of what we want as part of the transaction. And we're operating, hopefully, ideally, in a closed loop, in an environment where we're not shopping a sale, we're talking about creating a catalytic event between a willing participant seller and, and set of owner buyers. Now there are obvious needs for outside stakeholders, whether it's for capital or technical assistance, but within that process, uh, we start to shop around straw ideas and proposals. We start to create a, a placeholder set of details for people to really react to and understand and modify. And that's really what generates momentum. Uh, and again, it's in a closed loop, so there's we're hopefully generating trust, communication. At the same time, I like to really up the engagement of the employees, and I like to create task forces uh, during that process or, or committees, I guess. Uh, one would start to look at financial uh, statements and develop financial literacy if they don't have it already and begin to understand the transaction and the new capital structure. Another one around governance and decision making. And then a third around education and culture. Because we can structure this transaction, but if the true heart of democracy and transparency is not built into the organization, no legal documents will will create cover and, and solution. So we engage the worker owners. We're working on an iterative set of terms, and we're taking the temperature of the group throughout that process. And at some point, we try to push for a go, no-go, at least one go, no-go. Uh, there are often a couple. But at some point, we put pen to paper, and we start drafting deal documents. And that's when we have a sense of what's involved for outside capital or what the transaction will look like. That may sound like a lot. It may sound intimidating. Um, that can happen as quickly as three months, but very often the time it takes for the seller to do their exploration, understand what's involved. They're learning a lot about their business they didn't already they didn't know already. Mm. Um, they become often um, kind of an expert in aspects of the business they may not have ever thought about since the business was founded. And sometimes the business was founded using a service like LegalZoom or uh, with, a, with an advisor who had no notion to think about a future of employee ownership. And so for them, it's a real learning process. It's a journey for everyone. Um, and I think the time is very well spent. Mm -hmm. I will say that for anyone really thinking seriously about this, it's reasonable to expect there to be an indirect cost in terms of the time to engage with employees, paying employees to sit down and think about this work in addition to their day-to-day -day job. 
And so it's not uncommon for there to be an extra cost or to have a short-term impact on profitability. And I alluded to that to, to that instance before. And in two cases, I saw a noticeable impact on profitability and an unprecedented resurgence after that fact, once we kind of came out of and had fully understood the landscape um, that we were currently occupying. And the rebound was just amazing, really awe-inspiring. What kind of, you talked about financing needs. Um, what kind of financing uh, uh, is generally a part of this kind of deal? And, and uh, do you need to uh, approach organizations that, uh, that may not be on the, on the radar normally for businesses? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and, I'll, and I'm talking from the perspective of somebody who works on essentially all employee ownership models, but except ESOPs, employee stock ownership plans. Those are highly intricate, technical, uh, regulated systems, and, and those are really already their own kind of specialization. So I work on everything else, corporate and cooperative um, ownership models. Uh, so the need for financing is, in many respects, similar to any scenario where there's a buy buyout, um, and there's a price for the business. That price is often much, much more than your ordinary employees who collectively uh, can come up with capital. It's often insufficient to pay off a buyer in one payment. We're we're seeing between 20 and 50% of a sale price financed by a seller, and what that means is that the seller in exchange for either a promissory note, uh, a form of, of equity, or some other repayment structure agrees to float that payout over time. That's anywhere between 20 and 50%. Um, ownership in every context involves risk and it involves um, sleepless nights. And for better or for worse, in the system we have, that comes in the form of, of investment. And employees, in most cases, are asked to invest in the business. And I've seen anywhere from 5 to 20% of, of a sale price coming from the employees. Sometimes that's financed through payroll deductions, but it, it's real money invested. Uh, there's often a gap there. And so, you know, there's been an ecosystem that has developed around providing capital for these transactions. There's essentially co-op-friendly private equity. Um, there are community-oriented and cooperative-oriented funds available uh, called community development financial institutions, and there are private investors that are uh, really supportive of co-ops. Uh, there are also co-ops that are supporting this effort and are using their own success as a platform to spawn other co-ops. And so there's a variety of options out there. There is capital available to facilitate these transactions. One of my questions is, you mentioned that one of the conversions that takes place um, is actually the uh, culture of the business. What are some of the things that you see like having to happen in most businesses as they transition from a traditional structure to um, a cooperative structure or an employee-owned structure? Well, one is education, awareness, and engagement. Uh, for, for, for a lot of employees, they've been asked to do little more than show up and do their job. Um, that's often not the case with businesses that are thinking about employee ownership. Uh, this is often a business structure that arises because an owner has recognized an extra degree of, of initiative and commitment. Um, but there needs to be a wholesale evaluation and reevaluation of decision-making structures. And is there both a competent and trusted management team or management structure in place? 
Uh, for employees, it means open book management. What is that? What does that mean? How do I read a financial statement? How do I play the role of owner? For a lot of companies that make this transition, there's a deep and, and mysterious question around what is my new role? Does this give me a seat at the table in making personnel decisions, at knowing what everyone's salary is? And for every company, it's different. And there's really no blueprint other than to say that we can essentially manifest whatever the collective wants. Mm -hmm. And again, that sounds daunting, but through a series of highly facilitated discussions, we arrive at what we want and we design around that. That sounds anathema to the traditional notions of business structure. We adopt a, a tradition, a standard structure, an owner makes decisions. Sometimes it's behind closed doors. There's not a whole lot of transparency. All of those notions, those buzzwords, come with a great deal of training and education. Uh, another major cultural shift is to understand and acknowledge um, that this is an economic structure, that we're still running a business. Mm -hmm. um, it's a form. We're creating fora for democratic engagement and to understand that there's a difference between governance and ownership. And they're related. But governance is in many respects about systems for accountability, systems for democracy, and ownership is about risk-taking and strategy, pursuing opportunity to yield a sustainable return. And the difference here, what makes this sustainable, what makes this humane, is that return is generated for the people who created the value and took the risk. It's not generated for some remote investor who put important but passive capital on the line. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really virtuous circle of value creation and value return. Uh, and these notions, as abstract as they are, are brought to life through these transactions. And so they become very tangible, very practical, and they need to survive in a competitive business climate. That's one of the most exciting things to me is to put these notions into practice and see thriving competitive businesses that are profitable. And as it turns out, in many cases, they're more profitable than their competitors. They experience lower attrition rates than their competitors. Uh, they tend to have uh, more diverse workforces and more diverse representation in leadership positions. Mm -hmm. So it's a real economic manifestation of a lot of the social values that we hold in, in progressive areas and in progressive life, in civic discourse and civic life. But it's also worth noting that, you know, you use the language of traditional business models, that this is also a model that has been uh, proven over time, right? And we live in a state where, where uh, you know, cooperative business delivers electricity to 70% of the landmass of uh, Colorado, where uh, a lot of our agricultural sector uh, for decades and decades has depended on cooperative business models where small hardware stores are depending on cooperative business models, you know, uh, uh, down to McGuckin's down the road here uh, in, in, in Boulder here, which depends on its relationship with distribution uh, cooperatives. Uh, so, so this is uh, a model that, uh, while on the one hand is, is experiencing a resurgence now, especially in the, in the worker-owned uh, uh, sector, uh, it's it's rooted in practices that go way back and that are already part of the kind of uh, economic underpinning of our of our state. Yeah, we have a very unique culture nationally and even internationally um, with respect to cooperatives. Colorado's cooperative heritage dates back to before the 30s, and it was really a homestead movement. It was a self-help culture that encouraged folks to move out to the hinterland and to the remote areas in, in mountainous regions and to create 
for themselves by aggregating their needs. And in the worker-owned context, it's about autonomy. It's about the sovereignty of the business, and it's about ownership. And what's fascinating is that cooperatives are, are a bipartisan issue. The statutes that we have in Colorado were developed across the aisle with very little controversy in recognition of the agricultural and ranching heritage uh, that brought us some of the early cooperatives to rural electrification and telecom and, uh, and, and water distribution. And to now see it express itself for social values is a new expression, but as you say, it harkens back to centuries-old tradition of cooperative um, organization. So let's let's uh, talk about how people can get involved. You know, what what are some of the what are some of the uh, points of entry uh, for people who are interested, either as employees or as business owners, in the possibility of conversion? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. We we live in a in a in a moment of hyper saturation when it comes to um, conscious consumerism. And at the risk of asking people to take stock in one more thing, we vote with our dollars. And I think in this day and age, as money is localizing, as brands are localizing, it's important to take stock in the businesses around us that are employee-owned. I walked into my local bank the other day only to ask for something to be notarized, only to find out it was employee-owned. I didn't know. I'm now planning to move all my business banking over over to that to that business for that reason alone. It's one more thing. It's a, it's a frame by through which we can view um, conscious consumerism. Shop at buy and buy employee-owned products. Um, purchase services through employee-owned businesses. That's one way, and it's in fact the most important way to support sustainably support an employee-owned business. Um, two is to look for, seek out, join um, any organization that's advocating on behalf of employee ownership. Here in Colorado, we have the Rocky Mountain Employee Ownership Center. They're just a phenomenal resource doing very important work. Um, and the last is to participate and to the extent that the listeners are, are interested in uh, localizing dollars, there are some really important ways that folks can invest in and support worker ownership. Uh, there are funds available that support employee-owned companies. Um, the Calvert Foundation has a mechanism to invest in uh, um, employee-owned businesses. RSF, uh, uh, RSF Capital, based in San Francisco, is doing something similar. And there are community development financial institutions around the country that support this work. Shared Capital Cooperative in Minnesota, we have a fund here locally. Um, start to talk to money managers and asset managers and start to think about how we can look for burgeoning employee ownership businesses and what industries are undergoing transition and how capital can be de deployed in a thoughtful, supportive, uh, regenerative fashion. And this is the time and, th and this is where there's substantial need. And Paul's actually been thinking and lo looking around at uh, some of the these kind of local investment clubs that have been popping up uh, uh, to support cooperative businesses. What, what have you learned about that stuff? Yeah, um, well, there's sort of a mini movement starting. Um, in Right now, there's at least three that I know of, one in Minneapolis, one in Boston, and one in Vermont. Um, and they're, they're connected in a bigger sort of like conversation about how do we finance and capitalize um, cooperatives. So this is peer-to-peer, -peer, so it's like people who are investing $50 to $200 a month um, and, and pooling that together in an investment club, which has traditionally been used to just teach people about investments. 
Um, it's a partnership or an LLC, so it's a pass-through entity, meaning everyone takes on um, the responsibility for the debt themselves, or not the debt, but the, the lending. Anyway, um, and so it's, it's a really cool opportunity, and we're hoping to launch one here in Colorado. And I will say that there's an existing ecosystem for investment clubs into local sustainable agriculture. The slow money movement was founded and born in, in Boulder, Colorado, and now has investment clubs all over the country investing in sustainable agriculture initiatives. And they've served as models for investment clubs that are looking at cooperatives in other sectors, in, including worker-owned businesses and, and other cooperatively owned um, business structures. So that, that model exists. There, there th there's thriving activity and great community around local investing. And I'd encourage, again, folks to um, think about what opportunities and what communities are out there to move capital into, into this space. It's, it's very needed, and uh, it makes a huge difference. Well, thank you so much, Jason. Uh, you've given us a lot to work with, and if, if people want to learn more, they can go to your website, uh, Jason Weiner uh, PC. Yes, at jrweiner.com or at our uh, co-op development website, ccd.coop. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, uh, this is uh, 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 the Co-op Power Hour on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Nathan Schneider, and uh, my co-host today is Paul Bindle. And uh, this show is where members of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle join you on the fourth Thursday of every month to explore the challenges and opportunities of people-powered democratic economies. Before we finish up, I just want to share a few uh, 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 bits of, of, uh, of, of local, uh, uh, a few local opportunities uh, for people to get more involved. We've got, um, we'll have some, some meetings for the study circle coming up. Uh, you can follow those at uh, coloradocoops.info. Uh, we're still planning some of the next ones, but they'll be showing up soon. Uh, also, we have a tremendous opportunity this summer where the uh, Association of Cooperative Educators Conference is going to be at Regis University in Denver, July 18th to 21st. And I think all of us here are going to be participating in one way uh, or another in that. And um, it's, it's going to be a really exciting uh, opportunity to not only learn about uh, some of the, uh, the cooperative uh, uh, businesses in our community here, but to learn from people coming from across the continent uh, uh, who are experts in this field. And you can learn more about that at ace.coop slash institute. Um, uh, so thank you so much for joining us uh, uh, today for this show. Thank you, uh, Jason Weiner and uh, Halisi Vinson. And uh, I hope, to, uh, hope you'll join us next month.